0: Hello America, happy Monday. Welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from just the news. We've got a great show for you today. Two great guests back to back right after this. G-O-L-D, GOLD. That's 800-200-GOLD. And find out how you can add precious metals to your IRA. One more time, let me give you the number. It's 800-200-4653. 800-200-4653, GOLD. Or visit them at genesisgoldgroup.com. Genesis Gold, welcome to the John Solomon, Just the News family. Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, Dotus Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor advised fund. Go to donorstrust.org slash justnews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's donorstrust.org slash justnews. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Always excited to have this next guest on. If you want to make sense of the border or if you want to make sense of security in America, this guy's got it right. His name is John Zadrosny. He is the director of the America First Policy Institute Center for Homeland Security and Immigration. And before that, he was a deputy assistant to the president, President Trump, and one of the most important advisors on immigration policy. John, welcome back to the show. Hey, John, thanks for having me on again. It is great. You're doing amazing work on a daily basis. I want to step in here and take a look at something that began happening this weekend. Friday, the Arizona governor gave the okay to start filling in gaps in the border wall that the feds had stopped building in an effort to protect his own state. Your thoughts that we're now down to the point of states having to do the role of the federal government?
1: Yeah. So, John, in in some ways, it's a little disappointing, of course, in the sense that uh, the federal government has failed so substantially that they are not performing their main duties to protect the American public, especially when it comes to immigration enforcement and border security. However, I think it is a huge positive that Governor Ducey and Governor Abbott and probably other governors have stepped into the void, the literal void, and uh, taken steps to start solving the problems the feds have not. And it's it's a really stark reminder that we do have sovereignty at the federal, I'm sorry, we do have federalism at the federal level, but we also have a vertical federalism, which is between the states and the federal government. And thankfully, you've got at least a couple of governors who are along the border who are taking their obligation to protect their citizens seriously. And they don't need the federal government's permission to do it either. That's the important part. They don't need the Fed's permission to do it. Of course, I I imagine all the inaction that the Feds are, are, you know, what they're not doing, they'll find enough time to sue Governor Ducey, I'm sure, to try and find a way to stop him from filling those gaps. And I, I hope people are keeping an eye on this story and supporting Governor Ducey and what he's doing.
0: Yeah, it is absolutely essential, isn't it? We, we need to get to the bottom of it as quickly as possible to understand why it is that states are doing what the federal government can't do and also what the benefit will be. Do you think filling in gaps like this, that it will help close up some holes, at least drive some of the bad trafficking to other places where it can be monitored?
1: Well it it's it's uh it'll close the literal physical holes in certain parts of the the border wall um and it'll push them to other places like ports of entry or like you said, places where there can be real enforcement. But don't forget the real hole is a, a you know, a metaphorical one is the refusal of this administration to enforce the law. So even if you could literally funnel everyone to a port of entry to ensure they, they were walking in front of a customs and, and border patrol official, a, a borders protection official and said, Hey, I'm here. They're still going to let them in, uh, whether or not they've actually got an asylum claim. They're still not going to enforce remain in Mexico. They're still going to shove them through a a, um, broken asylum process where they're trying to get them to yes on asylum and let them stay. Um, We're even hearing rumors now that there are people at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services who are rubber stamping citizenship approvals because they're just trying to get them through the pipeline so damn fast. uh, Scrutiny doesn't matter. And so none of that surprises me, of course, but the real hole is the Biden
0: administration and it needs to be plugged. Yeah, it it really is remarkable that the philosophy has set in action a lack of inaction. Over the weekend, there was a warning from the Homeland Security Department telling folks that people who are upset about the raid on President Trump's home in Florida, or those upset about the open border and illegal immigration that they are now posing a domestic terrorism threat. But as part of that, the new Customs and Border Patrol guy said, well, these anger about the open border, it's not real. We don't have an open border. He literally was trying to tell his people something they know not to be true. Your thoughts, first of all, that the head of the CPB has to pretend that the border's secure when they know it's not first. Let's take that, and then we'll go back to the domestic terrorism morning in a second.
1: I mean, I think uh, I think Mr. Magnus might have a psychological issue. Uh, however, I think I think the left has convinced itself. Like, I think if you could get a couple of drinks into these guys and get them to be honest with you, I think that what, what they would admit is we have we, the border is secure in the sense that if we wanted to, we could secure it. But we don't. That That's the the most the kindest read of their idiotic comments that I can provide. But any human being who's watching it from a real world result just they see a colander. And they're right, because that's what's happening. This administration wants this entry. They want a flood. They want an amnesty. They are, you know, Americans aren't voting for them, so let's import some new citizens. And this is a policy, and it's not going to stop until there's a new administration in charge. It's just the way it's going to be.
0: It is interesting to see what we're, beginning to feel the fallout. There's a lot of people in CPB that don't feel like their leadership is even being honest with the situation. Therefore, they can't address it because if you won't acknowledge what's going on, you can't put a response to it that will actually work. And I think there's a lot of frustration when I talk to frontline people that their own bosses now seem to be in some delusional land far, far from here. Now let's take the second part of that memo, which is that viewing that people who have a legitimate gripe with the Raid on the president, or legitimate gripe about the illegal immigration policies of this pre- of this president, that they somehow pose a terrorism threat. I mean, we heard this obviously with parents. Your thoughts on the warning that came out over the weekend?
1: Well, I have to say, John, I'm proud to be lumped with Americans who protest school boards as actual Americans, and uh, it's very it's a good company to be in. But on a serious, all too serious note, uh, this administration is doing what should never ever be permitted in the United States, which is they are criminalizing. Uh, political opposition. There's just no other way to cast it. Uh, and for what it's worth, I don't know a single human being who has concerns about what they're seeing under this administration generally or in the last week specifically who has who favors violence. I don't. I, I We cannot be violent. People cannot be violent. Um, that's just not an answer to anything. Um, but it's pretty clear to me what this administration is trying to do is twofold. One is they want to make anyone who disagrees with them basically an enemy. Uh, I, I can't even get into how un-American that is. But I think they're also trying to bait people into violence. And Lord knows that would be that would be a fantasy for them. Uh, that would basically give them the ability to crack down and say, we told you so. All these people who want border security or were unhappy with happened to Donald Trump are, are picking up arms and shooting us. And we have to start doing things. So, again, the worst thing anyone could do is be baited, engage in violence. That's not acceptable. Political conversation is essential, though. You You need to continue to be strong. And speak your mind. You have that um, that right under our constitution, and that should not be given up.
0: It's amazing to see the crackdown on so many different fronts on free speech. Now, one of the great things that you're doing is you're helping to fight these intrusions at America First Legal. You've had a couple of big lawsuits and investigations announced in the last couple of days. Let me start with the one that relates to the Mar-a-Lago raid. You've obviously begun an investigation to look at whether the FBI has become weaponized, whether the DOJ has become weaponized. Tell us what you expect to find and why this investigation is so important.
1: Well, John, like you said, we've got a few things in the pipeline. We've got some requests, some FOIA requests out there regarding the raid itself. Uh, We've got some requests regarding Joe Biden's records and the National Archives and their uh, lack of cooperation. And we've also got a a letter, not a FOIA letter, but just a a letter to the uh, Department of Justice's Inspector General saying, we'd like you to take a serious look at these other abuses of power. Um, You seem to have a double standard at the Department of Justice for only looking out at Republicans to see if there's wrongdoing and turning a blind eye toward Democrat conduct. And we've asked We've asked him to uh, take a look at those. Um, But honestly, I'm not 100% sure what we're going to find, except I think we are going to find uh, a Department of Justice that has a double standard and is pretty motivated to make sure that Donald Trump never sees the White House again. Um, I mean, I think that's what it's about, honestly. I think it's a combination of they just keep piling on, hoping that people will turn away from him as a candidate in the future. And I think they're also trying to secure a potential 18 U.S.C. 2071 conviction, which is that statute that says if you've got a felony conviction, you're ineligible to run for president. Although, John, I think that's unconstitutional, quite frankly. And I could get into that if you want.
0: Well, it's funny. We had um, we had uh, Alan Dershowitz on who said the exact same thing. You can't you can't bar someone from the Constitution is clear what the bar is and isn't for presidency.
1: Yeah, the founders set those qualifications and Congress cannot add to them if they feel like it. And this is what happens in banana republics, which is why the Constitution is written the way it is.
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly why it was written this way. So I want to turn to the second part of this in another part of your litigation in America First. I think it's going to render some really important information. We are now seeing the CDC, the FDA, the NIH backpedal on so much of the advice they gave us. We have a story out this morning that... After telling us for months that the spike protein that was inserted into the mRNA vaccine so that we would become immune, that it didn't stay in our system long, they've retracted that. They've obviously now uh, retracted masks and six-foot distancing and acknowledged that things that they used to claim weren't true, that people with natural immunity were just as immune as people who got the shot. So they're backpedaling on that. I think you guys have zeroed in on something that's really important, and that is trying to uncover why... The federal bureaucracy, the medical bureaucracy, was trying to suppress hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for COVID-19. There's all these studies in India that say it works. Here, there seems to be a story it doesn't work. Tell us why this lawsuit is so important.
1: Yeah, so we are basically pursuing information about the degree to which uh, the CDC was suppressing information, and other federal agencies, too, were suppressing information on social media platforms about concerns about the vaccine uh, uh Expressions about what other drugs like hydroxychloroquine uh, would do to help people, ivermectin also would do to help people as a, a mitigating force, and uh, the reality is we we, sh- we exposed we were able to actually get a first tranche of documents from the CDC, which showed that they were in fact leaning. Uh, yeah, that, that more is to come. I hope, but uh, the initial tranche showed clear. Unequivocal and frequent interaction between some of the big tech companies and the CDC, and a willingness on the part of the big tech companies to work with the Feds, even volunteering to help suppress stuff. Um, and it's, it's, but it, but it's remarkable. Regarding you, you know your question about uh, hydroxychloroquine and also ivermectin, it's a good one. It really, what it comes down to is uh, people were unhappy about the fact that uh, there would have been no money in it. The reality is if you were able to have gone to the American public in the spring and summer of 2020 and say, hey, look, you know, we're working on a long term fix for this disease. Uh, it's it's ubiquitous. It's difficult to get under control. But it looks like we happen to have two drugs that have long since cleared the FDA's approval list and they've been generic for decades and they're safe. And that couldn't be countenance because that would not have allowed Pfizer and all these other companies to make multiple billions of dollars off of a fraud. Um, so uh, it's the truth's finally coming to light, and it, you know they're, unfortunately, they have caused real harm in the past by not letting the truth come out now, but the truth usually outs if you give it enough time, and um, I think we 're going to keep plugging away on this front, and hopefully others will too
0: yeah, no, I think it's so important, and what 's interesting, the constitution's clear right the government won 't abridge the right of America to exercise the right to free speech when the government's working with a free speech platform, isn't that a form of abridgment? And given that they're funded by Congress, it seems like the the constitutional mandate extends them. I know it says Congress won't make a law that will abridge free speech. If you create the CDC or you create these other agencies and then they're abridging free speech, are we hitting the First Amendment prohibition, you think?
1: John, I, I think you're one hundred percent correct. I think that is prohibited by the First Amendment because what you've basically done is you've basically deputize parts of the private sector to be federal enforcers. And at that point, you know, it's one thing to have an abstract conversation about a private company. Um, if they do X or Y or they they don't let someone do X or Y, you could say, well, they're a private company. I think even a company on the scale of these mega social media platforms has reached the point of being a quasi-utility and probably can't even claim that. But let's just pretend for the sake of argument that you can when they're doing it in a vacuum. When the federal government is working with them or instructing them to do it, whether voluntarily or not, it becomes a different thing. They're basically deputized as part of the federal government. And yes, the First Amendment does apply there.
0: We're going to learn so much from that FOIA and begin to understand this alliance between bureaucrats in the federal bureaucracy and the media and social media companies that seem to be carrying out the will of a certain part of the government fascinating work. When you look at the next month or so, there seems to be a lot of concern about Iran. We had the attempted assassination attempt foiled by against the National Security Advisor against a former president, right, George W. Bush. John Bolton it seems to me that Iran could carry out, and then you had the attack the other day on Salman Rushdie. It seems like Iran has the perfect scenario to do anything it wants right now because our border is so insecure. Do you think they're banking on the border as the vulnerability to carry out their next attack?
1: Um I do, and unfortunately, John, I have a funny feeling that if I hope there is nothing along those lines. I hope we do not ever have to join the. I'm not on your show talking about an Iranian terror attack, but I guarantee you the people who are the source of the problem are probably already here because they're not asking questions at the border. That's right.
0: Yep, it's a cart bunch wave in now. It's so amazing to see that, John. Real quick, how do people follow the good work that you're doing in America for a What's the best way to do that?
1: Well, the best way is to come check out our website, John. We're over at aflegal.org. That's alphafranklegal.org. And uh, we've got uh, basically the latest of our our requests out there. We've got some other lawsuits. And if you have any information for us, whether it's federal government, state government, a company abusing you, or you see violations of law, please come reach out to us. You can connect with us via email, but that's Uh, aflegal.org.
0: It's an important resource. I check it off, and that's how we learn about all these great investigations. John, always an honor to have you on. Can't wait to get you on again real soon. Thank you, John. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, a quick discussion about the war on drugs, what we're getting right, what we're getting wrong right after this. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward in investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they've also helped block a federal takeover of elections. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. Excited to have this next guest on. He served as the deputy director inside the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy during the Trump years. Someone who has been very eloquent at taking a look at the big picture of America's substance abuse problem, mental health problems. And now looking back with some fresh eyes on the pandemic, I think has some incredible insights about the danger of lockdowns as well. He is Dr. Art Kleinschmidt. Doctor, great to have you back on. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being on and having the opportunity. It's an honor to have you on. You've been such an eloquent voice in this area. And I want to start with something that we see now because no more than any other part of the open border right now. The fentanyl crisis makes every state a border state. The number of young Americans dying every day from fentanyl poisoning is off the chart. It seems like we're running backwards in the war on drugs, that we're losing this campaign against fentanyl. What do you see as someone who is fighting drugs and the scourge of drugs every day?
2: Uh, well, that's a good way to put it, that we're losing the uh, you know war on fentanyl. But I'm, I'm also kind of where, where a lot of my work and my emphasis is, is- has been placed is the fact that I didn't even know if we're actually fighting a war on fentanyl. It seems to be quite permissive, uh, the, the way things are going on right now. So, you know, I, I spoke about them before, but you have the George Soros operation drug policy Alliance, and they're one of the main major blockages to the, uh, SOFA legisl- legislation, which is to stop overdose, uh, of fentanyl analogs, uh, which which actually prevents the listing of fentanyl analogs as a schedule one drug, and if you want, I could tell you what a fentanyl analog is if people don't know, but
0: yeah, please just so for that so for the context for that for the listener okay, so like fentanyl
2: is a very strong uh, uh pharmaceutical drug, it's basically sort of like a, a very powerful, powerful uh pain anal- analgesic um, and then which is used a lot by anesthesiologists and that sort of thing. Uh, fentanyl analogs is when some chemist someplace actually plays a around with the molecular structure of uh, your traditional pharmaceutical fentanyl, it makes it much stronger. So fentanyl analogs are actually an illicit drug. What it is is somebody who uh, actually altered fentanyl to be even stronger than it currently is. Wow. Yeah,
0: that's scary because fentanyl is pretty potent already, isn't it?
2: It is, and this can make it. It makes it way stronger, and it's actually been weaponized one time before. Car fentanyl, when well, the Russians
0: used it, and they vaporized it. You hit on a point that I think a lot of Americans are: Do we really even have a war on drugs? You wrote a really powerful op-ed a few weeks ago. Is drug legalization the next failed drug war? Describe a little bit about what you're seeing in the sentiments of government officials. I mean, we came from 1971 when Richard Nixon signed the Drug Act into law to Nancy Reagan's just say no to now we have an addiction and overdose rate. That's what, 10 times what it was at the time of the height of those wars. Is the government just going ho-hum on trying to root out drug addiction?
2: I actually, when I look at it, the only conclusion I could come to is that they're actually attempting to breed dependency. I I really can't see it any other way uh, as far as like there's really no really valid reason to stop uh, the listing of fentanyl analogs. You look at the number of sort of safe injection sites that are going on, Governor Newsom's gonna sign one, which is actually a place where somebody can go and shoot up and they also allow you to smoke crack at a same facility. And even though they boast like they they're saving lives, like when I looked at the New York one, they had been in operation like just a couple of months and they had 59 OD reversals. That means that 59 people actually sort of were going to die on their premises. And if you compare that to your licensed methadone clinic. That, that's a travesty. That would be the most dangerous methadone clinic on the planet, but yet they're touting those sort of statistics as some sort of accomplishment. Uh, and really, when you look at that, the messaging is so wrong. It actually is telling people that there's maybe a safe way to ingest fentanyl, uh, and, there's, and there's
0: not. There's not, yeah, no, that's just exactly right. I mean, one pill with just the wrong lethal dose and someone is dead. And I'm told in some cases, or in a lot of cases now, These are not full-time drug addicts that often are killed by the drug. Sometimes they're first timers or occasional drug users. Talk a little bit about the difference between overdose and poisoning when you look at the actual victims who are falling to this incredible scourge.
2: Well, I I don't want to like sort of play on the words, but some people are actually sort of attracted to the fentanyl, right? Because it's like super strong and they want that high. They want to kind of push the limits of how high they could sort of get without, uh, you know, falling off the cliff. Sort of a thing. So that would be somebody who's seeking fentanyl. And once an addiction starts moving, you know, more progressive, and once they get used sort of to fentanyl, that's actually going to be what they're going to crave more to get the blast that they are seeking, right? Because so they get more progressed in their disease. The other sort of a poisoning type of thing is somebody who might buy like a, a Xanax pill or something and then find out it's laced with fentanyl. So when you're dealing with like fentanyl, something as powerful as fentanyl, the margin of error becomes very, very narrow. Um, you know, and then so you're seeing a lot of like what I call the bootleg type of drugs out there that have fentanyl in it. You can have it even in cocaine and everything. So it's that would be more of your poisoning people who aren't actually seeking fentanyl, uh, and then actually end up with fentanyl in their system when they're taking something else. And, and like I said, it's it's uh, it's really sort of a dangerous uh, dividing line there.
0: Yeah, it sure is. Young people disproportionately uh, affected social media, becoming a place where kids get pitched drugs that they think might be something like oxycodone or Vicodin, and then they all of a sudden find out that it was fentanyl when they're dead. There's a big case, The sentencing I think occurs in Harrisonburg, Virginia next month. But talk a little bit about the role of social media companies in allowing the purveyors of this deadly drug to pitch it to young people and some of the tragedy that it has resulted in?
2: Well, it used to be, I used to carry a caseload as a licensed clinician and I I worked in rehab for a long time, so it started to get more and more prevalent that if I had a caseload of seven, I would have one or two people on my caseload, young people, uh, uh, that main drug supplier was the internet. Uh, a lot of it was coming over. They would download the search engine tour, uh, and then they were buying it, uh, literally, that way. But it, even they sort of expanded to areas sort of like, I don't name a company, but like a Snapchat. It was sometimes within sort of the video game sort of uh, 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 correspondences people could have with one another, it actually be getting sort of way more prominent the uh, drugs coming via the internet. Um, now we're seeing also a lot of it, you know, like I mentioned before, and a lot of people know, but uh, the precursors are coming from China, and then they're being manufactured, put together as fentanyl in northern Mexico. So that's coming across. And then they, they actually sort of make and bootleg and press pills to look like something else when it's actually sort of fentanyl, fentanyl-based.
0: Are the social media companies doing enough to police for this conduct to keep young children from being targeted by insidious drug dealers it seems as though there's enough cases now for them to realize that their forums are potentially a place for tragedy to be born
2: well i i would almost say uh you know not to super point fingers but there's not enough actually going on that uh, you know that uh going on how fatalistic this, this particular drug is, buying drugs over the internet, how fatalistic that is, because you don't know what you're buying, you don't know what you're getting your hands on. And then I what I do have to overlay that is with the message that the federal government's actually saying uh, whether it's the state of New York to put out a pamphlet, a safe way to do fentanyl uh, that fentanyl are using could be empowering if you do it sort of safe. So that message is getting over overlaid, the, the social media. And as you, as you know, social media seems to be kind of really aligned with what the uh, administration uh, messaging wants to be
0: on that. Yeah, such a great point. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of people now coming to realize that the lockdowns and all the things we did to fight COVID-19 were so draconian that they actually had more negative effect than they had positive effect. And this is particularly, I think, true now that we're seeing the CDC is no longer requiring the unvaccinated to quarantine. The CDC's rules are all falling backwards, right? They're acknowledging natural immunity was as good as the immunity from the shot. Is there a moment, you started writing about this, I think back in the spring, is there a moment where the public health community realizes that the approach it took on COVID was the wrong approach?
2: I don't know if they're actually sort of the moment uh, that they noticed, I, I, you know, if I want to be, you know, honest, I feel like there's probably a little bit of CYA going on right now, but uh, because their enforcement was like sort of unreal. Uh, and I, I worked on the executive order when I was I was on the domestic policy council when we wrote the executive order about behavioral health during the lockdown, you know with the skyrocketing of overdoses and where they out, oh, was going on if you If you were like a young person or somebody new trying to get into recovery during the lockdown you it, it, it was a total disaster for you uh, you know twelve step meetings were actually sort of wiped off the uh, shelf i mean they were gone uh. Basic any supports of every in any kind was really sort of greatly diminished. Uh, at the same time, you know, we had drugs born across the border. So any time, if you look at the lockdowns and look at it as a type of trauma that occurred, especially to young people, and then you reopen up, let's say the trauma's over, we're going to open up the economy, the residual effects of trauma continue to move on. When somebody increases their drug use during that sort of time period when they're isolated alone uh depressed and everything those those patterns don't stop just because they reopened the economy
0: they're already on the slide right
2: yeah, they're already going on and same thing with like the trauma that was induced back then i even wrote there's more sexual assault during that time period as well that kind of went a little unreported uh so a lot of that is we're having going to have residual effects if you could look at it so we, we had a four percent decline in overdoses Prior to the lockdowns. And when you look at, I made a big graph, traced overdoses from 1968, Uh, we had a dip, a 4% cut in overdoses. And then when the lockdowns came, it just kind of, it's just skyrocketed up. And so far, like you said, it's the overdose rate per 100,000 is 10 times as high as it was in the 70s. It's
0: just mind boggling. I mean, we think of the 70s as sort of the era of the great drug experimentation, but we're way beyond that in terms of penetration and danger to the American public. We have all these agencies that have a role in this. There's NIH that does study, CDC that regulates, FDA that regulates. Uh, it doesn't seem like they've found anything in the last couple of years to put this into reversal, to slow this down. Obviously, there are you know judgments against some of the oxycodone makers, but there doesn't seem to be a universal strategy that is going to have any impact in the short term on the, the scourge and its rise why is that? Why, you know, we lost 107,000 people to this last year. That, that's about the size of a mid-sized city being hit by a nuclear weapon. Why is it that there's not a more concrete plan of attack for this?
2: Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that there is. It's just, like, I would say the wrong plan of attack when you look at it, that's why I went back to the 1968 for overdoses. We had, a, when they passed the 1971, the drug law, which makes some sign infamous or whatever, uh, we, America was experiencing a, a heroin epidemic back then. It was, you know, around the 60s countercultures in Vietnam. And overdoses got so high that they, they actually passed the 1971 uh, sort of act. What, what you're seeing now is... Uh, And really what occurred in that time period was an influx of quantity of heroin into the country. And then when you look at this sort of the uh, 80s, we had the the, uh, influx of crack cocaine, and we saw that that was sort of having on America. And then if you fast forward up until the very late 90s, when the federal government allowed for the pain uh, pill mills to actually flourish, based on federal policy, we upped the quantity of drugs in that regard. So if you look at every one of these epidemics that we had, it always stemmed from an increase of quantity at that point in time. So right now, uh, what, I, what I'm trying to say is we are vastly increased the quantity via the southern border of drugs. So there doesn't seem to be any willpower, or any real desire to sort of curtail that. And at the same time, as we're increasing the drug supply from south of the border, we're also allowing a lot of permissiveness and really bad messaging around the using of drugs. So it, so they having like with safe injection sites and safe ways to use fentanyl and all that kind of stuff is actually encouraging the use of drugs is what I've been trying to, uh, to highlight and pinpoint for people. So when you increase the supply and then you allow the permissiveness around it, you're looking at what is going on right now. And that seems to be their policy.
0: The borders opened uh, more trafficking. The medical industry is sort of fumbling with this. Some people on the outside are beginning to look for unique solutions see if there's anything that can break the cycle of addiction for people there's an article coming out in harper's magazine in september that's getting a lot of attention already it's by a reporter named zachary siegel but it it takes a look at a new treatment for opioid addiction called deep brain stimulation have you heard anything about that and is there a sort of a, a a new era of private research to try to address what the federal government hasn't been able to address
2: I don't, I, I've heard of it, uh, uh, and I don't know how invasive that's going to be. Uh, deep brain stimulation. I, I uh, maybe that would be a total effective policy. I'm all about it. People can have interventions, uh, no innovations to actually curtail this. I'm fine with it. I know that you know a lot of it, the medication assisted treatment and that sort of a thing. But I, I do uh, <clears throat> think that one thing we could do. I, I don't want to be. You know, too old school is starting to promote sobriety a little bit more than what we're doing right now, Uh, which is actually, you know, if you kind of, if people get sober off drugs, they start to actually recognize the talents that they have. They can get into recovery. They're being self-sufficient, you know, and and they're actually gaining independence and then their families are better and everything else. So I I do would like to see sobriety emphasized more, but if if what you're talking about uh, from this, with this particular uh, researcher, I mean, if that's an effective method, I'd be all for it. Yeah,
0: yeah, we're going to learn a lot for it. Why is it that sobriety isn't so fashionable? Why would we rather give people a place to shoot up again or take more drugs than try to get them off the drugs and into a sober life where a lot of times they feel better? When you're free from the addiction, you feel so much better. Why is it that we seem to be in the opposite direction? It's almost as though sobriety isn't like that important anymore.
2: Well, it, you know, I, you know, if you look at everybody's death certificate, they they died because they put drugs in their system. They didn't die because they were too sober beforehand. Right. But <laughs> You know, so like what what I sort of really think when I I you know like when I worked. Uh, in treatment, which I've done for a long time, recovery was very clear and easy. It was when I got to D.C. and the federal government that all of a sudden I realized that they were making recovery sort of murky. And I, I do think it sort of stems from my own observations from like working at HHS uh and dcp and that is uh there's almost like an unfairness to uh sobriety like it's not fair that somebody can get it and somebody can't so then they're trying to alter it and change it and there's also like a desire for people to kind of want to go in and try to control uh somebody else's use and and that sort of a thing it's it's really kind of bizarre to get your head around uh but anybody who's, like, going to, like, safe injection sites, I mean, they're still dependent, right? They're still kind of dependent. And so, like, one of the biggest ways to wreck families and, and create a cycle of dependence is with the, uh, drug addiction. Alcoholism is one of the – substance abuse is one of the biggest things to actually breed a certain amount of dependency. Uh, it's a very opposite of uh, self-sufficiency and independence.
0: I mean, most common sense people go, wait a second, we have this backwards, and yet the federal government still seems to be marching backwards, despite the wisdom of the people seeing it. Is there a moment where there's a disruption where either through election or through frustration, the American public can get a different approach on this drug addiction problem? Because it seems to me like it's just cycling upward without any real abatement. Uh,
2: <clears throat> unfortunately, it does seem to be cycling upward. I, I think maybe it will be around... Like you mentioned, with the COVID lockdowns, and they're seeing certain uh, f- flaws with that method of intervention on a, a viral disease. So I'm I'm thinking at some point we'll we'll get to uh, sort of that point where people are sort of seeing it. Uh, I I'm not sure right now because I, I talk to a lot of people, uh, you know, in, in my work and. There, there is certain factions, they, they really want to discount the border. Uh, and I, I don't think they can uh, to kind of get to that uh, area. You have to start to slow down the supply of drugs into the country, or at least sort of making that attempt. When we had the 4% decrease in overdoses, we also had strong border security at that point in time. We uh, It had gone to the border a couple of times. So we had a combination of Border security at that point in time, and then the messaging was that you know the addiction crisis, the overdose crisis, but it actually works that you know the drugs are harmful and that, and uh, uh, you know recovery is advantageous, uh, whether it's medication-assisted treatment or not. But now, and that messaging actually is very helpful. Now it's we're in, we're in the opposite. Uh, where we're being told that there's safe ways to consume fentanyl, that you're empowered if you can use fentanyl, and that sort of a thing uh, going on, and that, that's just actually going to be a disastrous message for people.
0: It has to be right. There's no good outcome that's going to come <laughs> from that approach. I mean, history's pretty clear on it. You do such great work on on a daily basis. I'm always fascinated by the work you're doing. What's the best way to stay in touch, doctor, with what you're doing? I mean, people listening are like, hey, I want to get involved in this. I want to do more. I want to be smarter. I want to be informed. What are the best ways for folks to stay in?
2: Well, well, I have my website. It's Recovery for America Now Foundation uh which is probably one of the best ways to get a hold of me every now and then people sort of link in me i get messages from linkedin uh as well but the website is actually very helpful if you want to find out more uh and i got a you know an excellent team that i'm working with i have a, a an amazing advisory board uh with me of a, a lot of like high ranking uh very knowledgeable uh compassionate people and a number of are in recovery as well on my on my board uh, Dr. Drew is on our advisory board as well. So very proud of the work that we're working on there.
0: Oh, that's really great. Dr. Art Kleinsmann, it's an honor to have you on. Thank you for what you're doing and for the truth you speak. In an era where we get a lot of static and misinformation on the, the war on drugs, it's really great to have someone with such clarity.
2: Oh, thank you so much for allowing me to be on your show.
0: We're going to have you back on soon for sure because this, this is a crisis not going away anytime soon.
2: Uh, Okay, well, thank you so much, and keep up the great work.
0: Thank you, sir. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite. Angie's List is now Angie, A-N-G-I, the nation's largest home services marketplace. And they're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project is, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done Well, that's what you want, right? I'm uh, thinking about building out my basement in my cabin. I've been perusing Angie looking for just the right contractor to get it done the way my wife and I want it done. Now Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and right in your neighborhood. That's important, right? You can do comparative shopping. Get started today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I or download the app today. The app and the website are free to use. Angie.com or the Angie app. Go check it out today. All right, folks. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. Until then... If you need a news fix 24-7, we got you covered at justthenews.com. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day.